So last week, we were in Acts chapter 6, and we were introduced to a man named, anybody remember? Stephen. Stephen, excellent. A man named Stephen. And Stephen was one of seven men who were chosen to help distribute to the widows uh, uh, that were under the church's care. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk a little bit more about who Stephen is. But what this week, what I want to do is uh, I want to look at what happens to Stephen after this assignment. Because God has more plans for Stephen beyond taking care of the widows. Luke continues to highlight this man and the impact that he had for the gospel. And so we're going to pick this up in uh, chapter 6, verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, speaking of the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So to sum this up, there are these religious people who did not like Stephen because he was speaking against everything they believed in. And so they got these trumped up charges against him. They said he was speaking against Moses. For those of you who don't know Moses, Moses was the guy that God used in Exodus to lead the Israelites out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. The story where you see the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. They also accused him of speaking against the laws, the commandments of the Old Testament. You'll remember that when they left Egypt, God used Moses to bring them the Ten Commandments and other laws that we read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, the things that they lived by, that guided their life, that directed them towards God. And they accused him of speaking against the temple. The temple, it was a special place for the Jews. This is where they came to worship God and, and to offer sacrifices for their sin. So they accused him of speaking against all of these things. And so when he comes before the high priest, the high priest from his high place looks down and says to Stephen, Stephen is what they say true? And in response, Stephen gives the last sermon of his life because he gets executed right after it. And today what we're going to do is we are going to examine that sermon. Now, I'm going to just talk to you about this sermon. I'm not going to read it because it is 50 verses long. And if I read it, I wouldn't have any voice left and we'd be here forever. So I'm going to hope that you go read it on your own. And I will say, we're going to talk about a lot of Old Testament things. They're going to probably sound maybe a little bit weird and new to some of you. And I'm going to post some stuff on Facebook this week that'll explain some of it better because we don't have time, but I encourage you to look some of it up. www.gotquestions.org is a good website for that because you'll get some, I'll say some things and you'll be like, what is that? Great place to go. All right, 
But my goal here is, like I said, not to go over every verse, but to highlight the major points that he makes. Because what he says is just as relevant for you and I as it was for them. I say this because Stephen is going to show them how they are blind to the God of the Bible. They're going to sh- he's going to show them how they are blind to the God of the universe. And some of us sitting here or watching on ho- at home are blind in the same ways to who God is. And so it is my prayer by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will have your eyes opened, that they will be blind and no more that God would grant us sight to see who he really is and what he is calling us to in his name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So as Stephen begins his reply of 50 verses, he addresses first the accusation that he was speaking against the temple, that he was desecrating the temple. And to sum up his whole verses that he spends on this, his whole point that he is going to make to them is that you don't need the temple to find God. And to make this point, he moves through the history of Egypt. He starts with Abraham, who we sang about earlier, who met God out in the middle of nowhere. God met him. He didn't have a temple. God was with Joseph in Egypt. Joseph didn't have a temple. God met Moses in the wilderness, in the burning bush. There was no temple. He performed wonders and signs in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. There was no temple. He gave his law to the people at Mount Sinai. There was no temple. Story after story of God working in the Old Testament, and there's no temple. And Stephen's saying, look, the activity of God is not confined to a building. In fact, at the end of his speech, he quotes the prophet Isaiah who gave this teaching after the temple was created. He says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is this my place of rest? Basically saying, look, this is good that you have built this, but this cannot contain my power. I am so much greater than this. So Stephen is implying that to announce the the suppression or the destruction of this Old Testament temple, it is not to commit blasphemy or sacrilege against God because God was independent of any temple. As Pastor John Wesley would say, the whole world is God's church. Now, unlike the Israelites, we don't have one temple that we all go to. In fact, we don't really have any temples, really. Anytime you you go to a church and and they have temple in the name, it's just a fancy word for church building, right? That's what we have nowadays. We have church buildings, like the one that we are meeting in right now. But we can still make the same mistake that these Old Testament religious people made in tying the glory of God to a single place. You can see this in some Roman Catholic or or Orthodox or Anglican Episcopalian traditions who have a a holy altar that they have up here. You guys have seen it, that, that depicts the presence of God in the sanctuary, where the priest serves as our mediator between God and between man. And we learn that this is the place we come to meet God, to feel close to God, to to sing to God, to to confess our, our, our sins to God, to serve God. This is where we find God. 
Now, not all churches have an altar. We, we have no altar. We have a music stand. But we can make the same mistake, and, and, and we can do this without even realizing that we do it. And one of the ways that you can tell if you are making this mistake is you can stop and look at your relationship with God Monday through Saturday. Versus your relationship through God at Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 10.45. And some of you, you grew up in this. I've had conversations with you where you, your parents would take you to church on Sunday and they would act a certain way. And then when they left the church and, and they went home, God was absent the rest of the week minus some kind of religious tradition. As if the church building is where you found God where he gets your attention. And that's also where you leave him. Imagine a married couple, if you will, a happily married couple who live in a house together and do what married couples do in that house. But the moment that they leave that house, they ignore one another. There's no phone calls. There's no texts. Maybe they even pass each other by randomly at the gas station or, or at the supermarket, but they don't even pay attention to each other as if they did not exist. But once they come home together, hi, honey, how was your day? That sounds weird, doesn't it? But that is exactly how some of us live. Because we come to church, we lift our hands, we praise our name, we open our Bibles, we do what we're supposed to do, and then we leave him here when we walk out the door. We ignore him the rest of the week. True worship of God does not happen because one particular building is holy. True worship of God happens everywhere in our lives. Because of the relationship that we have in him. It happens everywhere. Far too many of us, we, make, we treat God like a doctor or like a hairdresser. We make an appointment with God. We go see God at 9 a.m. or 1045. And then sometimes we show up or we cancel. And then we leave him there until the next time that we come. But God does not want just appointments in our lives. He wants relationship. He doesn't want just appointments in our lives. He wants relationship. And far too many of you have an appointment attitude towards God. Someone who truly worships and has a relationship with God will be connected or try to connect to God everywhere they are. In their home, in their car, in their job, in their school. When they're taking a walk, they know God is there. In John 4, Jesus is teaching to the woman at the well. And they're talking about worshiping God. And she, and she brings up worship and she says this. The woman speaking to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped him on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. In other words, where's the right place to worship God? This is Jesus, what he says to her. He says, woman, and not in the condescending way that we would now. He says, woman, believe me. 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. And he goes on to say, look, God is spirit. He's everywhere. And the people that he is looking to worship him, worship in spirit and in anybody? In truth. And then 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul goes on to say, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? See, because of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying the presence of the Lord is not symbolically in one building. It is inside of you. He is with you at all times. And so a life that follows God, that worship will take place in every aspect of you. And what is worship? We're not talking about just singing hymns or or songs. Worship is obedience to the Lord. So I must ask you this morning. Do you just make appointments with God? Or do you have a relationship with him? Do you make appointments with God or do you actually have a relationship with him that goes outside of Sunday morning? Is he on your mind? Do you talk to him? Do you ask him for help? Do you give him thanksgiving? Do you spend time in his word? Is there effort in your life to put into practice what you read? Do you make appointments with God? Or do you actually have a relationship with him? Now, I should take a moment and clarify. This does not mean that coming to church is not important. Scripture commands that we should come together. There's no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. In fact, church should be a priority in our lives. That means it's first and not last. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on to good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. So coming together is important, but the worship of God should not be confined to this building. And see, this is the problem that they had. They were putting all their effort into the temple and bringing sacrifices. And, but throughout the history of Israel, the, their lives outside of that temple worship was a joke when it came to a dedication of God. In fact, that's the entire Old Testament was God being faithful to Israel and them being unfaithful to God. He says, look, you were disobedient when you had the tabernacle and you're wandering in the desert and that was like a mobile temple. He goes, you were disobedient to God when you had the first temple. You were disobedient to God when you had the second temple. Why is the temple so important to you? And then he moves on to the law. He said, okay, you're also upset with me about the law. You've had the law all this time. And you have remained faithless to God. Now this doesn't mean that the law was bad. The law was good. Because it taught them right from wrong. 
and how to live a blessed life. And that's why God's word, and in the Old Testament law, actually, if you look at the Hebrew translation, it meant teaching, guidance, direction. And in the same way, that's why we read God's word. That we may be lived a life that is blessed because God teaches us how to live life that he intended. James 1.25 says, Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not neglecting it, but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. So in a sense, Stephen will go on to say, he said, look, the law is important. It's important. We shouldn't ignore it. But the problem is you've never obeyed it in the past. And so if you think you're going to be saved by obeying the law, we got a problem. The law is not meant to save you. The law condemns you. And this is a true point for us. In the same way, some of you have brought up in religious traditions where you have been taught that if you are good enough for God, he will usher you into heaven and he will cover you with his blessings. Oh, look at Alyssa. She went and visited a sick person. Blessing, blessing. Look at Alan. He went and fixed somebody's car for the 19th time. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And in in return, when you do bad, God's punishment. Oh, look at Dominic. He played that solo longer than Stephanie told him to. He ruined Laura's song, cursing, cursing. We laugh, but this is how we live. We live in this superstitious relationship with God. And this is what the Old Testament religious people did. They wrapped all their superstition up in obeying the law and in the temple. When God is, what God wanted was their hearts. We do the same. We'll rub certain beads because it brings us closer to God. Or we think when we get baptized in water, we are somehow sanctified. Or when we, we read a Bible, we read our Bible in the morning, God will bless us. But if we don't, he will curse us. Or we can live this way. In return of living in the right framework, that we get baptized because what God has done for us. That when we read his Bible or don't, we still are children of God if our faith is in him, but we will be more likely to obey him and be blessed in what we do if we follow his word. And we're more likely to fall into a trap if we don't, but it doesn't change the nature of our relationship with God. I mean, where did this thing that if we do good enough, God will bless us even come from? I can't find it anywhere. I mean, I would love if it existed. I would love if it say, if you do A, B, and C, God will accept you into heaven. If, if God brought down for you a holy scale, and every time you did something good, ding, and every time you did something bad, and you could see it, balance. But if you think about, there's no guide anywhere that tells us how good is good enough. In fact, the Bible discourages even thinking about it. Andy Stanley, he gives a great illustration like this. He says, to live in this life for God, believing that your good works is what keeps you close to God and blessed by God, it would be like running a race. And you're told that if you cross the finish line, you get to go to heaven and God loves you. The only problem is the race has no markers on it. There's no mile markers. There's no signs. There's no arrows. There's nothing. And then at one point, it breaks off into five different paths. Well, which one's the right path? Oh, we don't really know. Just pick the right one. 
You would have nowhere to go. You would be lost. And that is what people I meet who live by this thing that trying to be good enough do. They end up lost, always wondering, always in fear, am I good enough for God? Always trying to work enough for God. Or they give up, I'm too bad, I can't get it done, and they walk away from God. And it was bad enough in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes along and he complicates it anymore, even more. If you thought you could track your good from your bad, he comes along and he says at one point, he says he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He said, look, you read that if it's a sin to commit adultery. But I say that if you even look at another woman lustfully in your heart, you have sinned against God. Oh my gosh, my thoughts count? I'm doomed. I am doomed. I mean, maybe I do a good thing every 20 minutes or every hour, but man, I sin in my mind about 19 times a minute. I'm doomed. Stephen is like, look, you guys are so focused on the temple. You're so focused on the law. You're missing the one thing that can actually bring you salvation that can give you peace in your heart, that can give you identity with God, that can answer the questions to life that we're all trying to have answered. In fact, you can tell he gets upset. He says in verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He goes, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, speaking of Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law and that was delivered by angels and did not keep it. It's almost like Stephen is saying, you don't get it. I'm trying to help you all. And you are going to condemn me like you condemned everyone else. Jesus said this once, and it got everybody in an uproar, confused his disciples, angered everybody else. He said he would destroy the temple, and he would build another in three days. And he says, not made by hands. And he's talking about his death and his resurrection. They didn't get that at the time. And basically what he's saying is, I'm going to destroy this kind of religion where you are so tied to the law And looking to it so much that you're missing what your salvation is. Just like the temple represented God's presence in the Old Testament. Jesus was like, I'm here now. I am the temple. I am God's presence in your life. It's like Stephen saying, look man, can you see it? Don't you see it? Why are you so blind? Look at the Old Testament. The whole point of it is to point to Jesus. The glory of God was with man in the garden. And then the glory of God was with man in the, in the, the tabernacle, the traveling tent that went along with the Israelites while they wandered in the wilderness. The glory of God was, was in the first temple. It was in the second temple. And he said, now the glory of God came in Jesus Christ. Like we read in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and the only son who came from the father. 
full of grace and full of truth. Stephen's saying the law doesn't save you. The temple doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But you have all rejected him. And listen, I get why some of them would be confused by this because they're like, look, if the temple doesn't matter, then how, how, how are we supposed to do our sacrifices? See, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, when you, what you would do is you would come to the temple and you would bring one of the best animals that you had. And we're talking top of the line. You brought the grade A meat animal. I mean, top of the line. And you brought it to the priest. And they... They were like, they're pretty much like a butcher, for lack of a prettier term. And they would kill the animal, and they would burn the meat and the intestines and everything of the animal as a sacrifice to God. You were literally giving up some of your food back to God. And they would keep the skins, usually, that the, the priests would use for materials around the temple, or, or they would sell to support the work of the temple. But the whole point of this sacrifice, which sounds like, look, it sounds really weird to us because it's not in our culture, was an act of asking God for forgiveness for your sins. See, from the beginning of time, God has communicated that sin equals death. Because sin in the eyes of God is an act of treason. Anytime we choose sin, we are saying, God, I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to do my own way. I'm going to live my own way. And in thus, what we do is we bring other along other people with us. It's an act of treason. And so the only way, I mean, the punishment for treason, for sin is death. And so in the Old Testament, he said, if you bring an animal and sacrifice something from your flock, you will receive forgiveness. What they didn't realize at that time, and what we often don't remember about the Old Testament, is that everything in the Old Testament was teaching us about Christ. Everything. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Just like animals were used as sacrifice in the Old Testament, Jesus, the lamb that was slain, was sacrificed for all of mankind. Just like you would go into a courtroom and pay the penalty, pay the fine, pay the fee for somebody else who got in trouble, a ticket or something to get them out, Jesus' life was paid. That forever puts their faith in him is adopted by God into his family. We don't place our faith in a temple that can be torn down. We don't place our faith in a law that we can never keep. Stephen says, place your faith in Jesus. Faith. Faith. I mean, look to Abraham, the one who started it all the founder of the Hebrew nation, where the promise of Christ was first revealed. His relationship to God was based on God's grace and faith. God graciously appeared to him, revealed himself to him, took him out of darkness into the light of salvation, and Abraham responded by faith. 
Many years it took Abraham to see some of the promises of God, to realize some he never saw all of them realized. Hebrews 11 is about this. But he had faith. Not because he kept a law, for there was no law to be kept. Not because he worshipped at the temple, because there was no temple to be worshipped in. All those things came afterwards. It was by faith. And that's the difference. See, the Jews, they were trying to earn salvation by doing all this stuff, by obeying the law, by going to the temple. But no, no, Jesus says, I am your salvation. You still may do all the same stuff, but you don't do it to earn salvation. You do it because you've received salvation. And when you understand that, it is not a burden, but it is a joy. Because you know what you received from. Someone who has joy in the Lord, they realize that he was the final sacrifice. He was the bridge between God and humanity. He was the final temple, if you will. He was the righteous one. He is the one who fulfilled the law. He is our savior. He is our way back to God. The question is, will you look to him this morning? We're gonna end a little differently today. I wanna ask you this morning to close your eyes. Lord's gonna come out and play for us a little bit. And my prayer is that this sermon encourages you. It either encourages you to research some of this more, to find these answers, because I used all these confusing terms and phrases, or it encourages you about God's steadfast love and patience. Listen to this as your eyes are closed. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. If you have had a habit of leaving God just in the church, if this is your appointment, but he has no other place in your life, I pray that you are encouraged by his grace and his mercy that today he calls you to worship him in spirit and in truth. That he never gives up on you. He patiently waits. But I also want you to be warned that there is an end to the patience of God. Either in the day that you breathe your last breath or when you have been resistant to the Holy Spirit for so long and so far that you can no longer hear his voice. Nothing should give you more fear than God giving you over to your sin. Just like it happened to the Israelites time and time again. So I pray that today is the day that you repent to the Lord. That you say, Lord, I'm sorry for making just appointments with you. That I want a relationship with you that is seven days a week. I want to call upon your name in faith every day.
I want to follow you. With every eye closed, if that's you this morning, what I want to ask you to do is simply one thing, is I want you to just make eye contact with me. And the reason I'm asking you to make eye contact because there's something powerful that happens when we put something, a physical action, to something that we're feeling and we're believing. We're saying, I own it. It is real. So this morning, if that is you this morning, if you want to go beyond just appointments with God and a real relationship with him, I want you just to look at me and make eye contact.